Welcome to Benzinga's Psychedelics Podcast. This interview episode will feature some of the major companies, organizations, and individuals working toward making evidence-based psychedelic-assisted therapy available for those who would benefit from it. I'm Lara Goldstein, Benzinga's lead psychedelics writer. Today, introducing Justin Townsend, partner and CEO of Micromeditation, a Jamaica-based retreat that offers healing of multiple high-dose psilocybin experiences with a safe group environment, informed support staff, and calm locations for life-changing journeys. A business leader and startup advisor in several industries, including the healthcare space, Justin holds some 20 years of experience exploring psychedelic modes of healing and developed meditation and breathwork techniques, which he taught in Germany before being located in Jamaica. Justin joined the Micromeditations team in 2017, becoming partner and CEO in 2019, and is a retreat facilitator himself. Since its launch, Micromeditations has administered reportedly over 6,000 therapeutic doses of psilocybin to their clients. Justin, it's somewhat uncommon that companies offering retreats speak, you know, the medical or clinical trials language, conducting surveys and which results could compare to clinical research and does seem like a distinctive proposal. So could you share a bit more about this practice? Um, as, as you look at the, uh, like the, the, the spectrum of available retreat type opportunities or psychedelic therapeutic opportunities available these days, um, you can say that at one end of the spectrum, you have the pure shamanic type offering, be that um, psilocybin, be that ayahuasca. Um, moving further along the spectrum, uh, you've got Westerners um, that kind of embody some of the shamanic practices. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got the full clinical trial slash medical model. And in the worst kind of environment, that's white white coats, beeping monitors, fluorescent lights, um, all enclosed within a building. And so I have worked at the shamanic end of the spectrum. Um, that was part of my early education and training, although I would not claim for one moment that I have anything resembling a shamanic lineage or apprenticeship. Rather, it's been a 20-plus year apprenticeship of working with medicine men, medicine women, and some great clinicians as well over the years. We are primarily positioned to treat mental health. Uh, we're not exclusively mental health. A lot of our guests come down uh, for wellness. And uh, certainly in Jamaica, there are a lot of wellness-focused psychedelic retreats, um, typically for people that don't have any kind of clinical diagnosis. Um, so in, in developing micro-meditations with my business partner, Mike, we wanted to develop um, a gold standard model for group psilocybin-assisted therapy in a naturalistic environment where we looked at the best practices from the 60s and the 70s, uh, clinical practices working with psychedelics. We looked at the recent work of John Hopkins and MAPS and Yale and others, most of which, or the majority of which, is really geared around one patient and one to two clinicians. And as I've said, a very medical model. We wanted to, to develop a Western contemporary therapeutic model. And one of the big differences here is that we have structure. Uh, we're very focused on safety and protocols. And yet, as we know from, say, America or Europe, um, when you're working with a therapist, a psychologist or a doctor, 
there's a very, very clear and distinct power differential between the doctor and the patient. And in our mind, that doesn't lend itself well, that kind of uh, power differential to the kind of work that we do down here. So we, we, we believe that we've embodied and have continued to develop the best of the protocols and practices, but we're bringing very much uh, um, a relationship of um, equability. Equability, I think that's the word. Um, and my team members are very authentic. That lends itself to great psychological support. Um, obviously, our guests just come here for seven days. We don't have, such as in a typical therapeutic relationship, weeks and months to get to know people and to build that rapport, to build that psychological support and trust. It happens in a very short space of time here. And so we spend a lot of time in our interpersonal relations and authenticity. And as I say, we, we embody the best of a therapeutic slash leaning to a little bit towards a medical model um, with a very human degree of interaction uh, with our clients as well. Um, also, I would say about the shamanic type retreat, that's very appropriate for some people. They want to go on shamanic retreats. And certainly, whether it's psilocybin or ayahuasca, um, there's, there's no doubting the neurological impact of those substances in a positive manner on people's um, neurology and brain. However, um, if you think about the psychological content that arises for people, um, to have that interpreted for you through the lens of a shaman isn't always appropriate for the Western mindset. There's, there's vast differences in cultural, cultural understanding and culture. And so we bring this Western contemporary mindset. So as this material uh, starts to arise within our guests, some of its unconscious material, uh, we can put that to more practical use and understanding and help them integrate it so that when they go home, uh, it makes sense. It's, they've begun the process of integration and they're ready to lay down uh, new ways of, of behaving and being. How does the PTSD data that you've gathered through a survey to uh, former participants, how does it come together with the fact that there's no, uh, or is it maybe, is there more uh, like a follow-up therapy for participants? You know, if you can tell us a bit more about the data, what it means, and even uh, the fact that it could be comparable to the MAPS data for MDMA-assisted therapy, that's, that's pretty huge for the sector. Psilocybin versus MDMA for treating PTSD. So um, in one of my prior incarnations, if you like, I was head of innovation and entrepreneurship at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. And there I worked in the Institute for Next Generation Healthcare, where we're looking at healthcare 10, 20 years down the road. And one of the things that was quite common was looking at longitudinal studies to track people over a one to two year period and see how some of these prophylactic preventative measures being taken um, could be tracked over time. So that's where I really truly learned the value of longitudinal studies and data, as well as always following what was happening in psychedelic research as well. And so um, what we did was about two years ago, just over two years ago, we decided um, that before a guest arrives on retreat, that we would send them um, as part of our preparation packages, getting them ready for the retreat, a series of mental health rating questionnaires that are nationally recognized and used across mental health. So they would um, be sent the, uh, the depression rating scale, the PTSD rating scale, the anxiety rating scale, and 
because we have a pre-retreat briefing before the retreat starts, we will go through our client lists. We understand what their mental health baseline is, therefore, when they arrive. Okay, That helps us inform our practice and our protocols and how we work with them throughout the week. That's, that's part of that pre-retreat briefing. Um, once a guest leaves retreat, um, they will go on to have two more group Zoom integration calls with our team members over the following weeks and months. Um, but about one month after they get home, and then at months three, six, nine, and 12, we will send them the same rating scales and ask them to complete them. And the purpose of that was to understand um, the longitudinal effects of the psychedelic assisted therapy that we've been doing down here with them. Now, of course, a clinical trial is pristine. It has to be pristine. Um, a lot of these, I mean, our rating scales are self-reported. Many rating scales are self-reported. And clearly that's not as valuable as, as sitting down and doing a rating scale and then having that assessment done with you by a, by a psychologist that's trained to do so. Um, that refines the data further. But the general trend that we were seeing, and I cannot yet speak in detail about depression or anxiety um, or the other uh, 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 longitudinal surveys we've done because we're yet to release that, but I can mm -hmm. tell you that they're very promising and certainly um, are equal to, if not better, in outcomes and current clinical trials. But what our PTSD showed was that at month 12, following a retreat, there was on average a 60% reduction in PTSD symptoms. And, mm -hmm. you know, to give you the Cuban interest, what does that look like? Um, I had a gentleman down here uh, a few months ago um, that had um, attempted suicide before in his past, had been very depressed because of a huge traumatic event that had happened to him and had been suffering with PTSD. Now, to that end, fast forward, prior to coming on retreat, um, he has a therapy dog that's a German Shepherd. Always when the client is waking up at night with nightmares and PTSD, the German Shepherd's waking up, the German Shepherd would settle him down. Um, also, he had a concealed carry permit and would never leave the house and walk his dog unless he had his pistol on him. Well, I'm happy to report, just anecdotally, that him and his dog now manage a full night's sleep every night, uh, no more nightmares. And that it's not even a consideration to leave the house carrying his pistol anymore. He doesn't even think about it. So he feels fully safe in the world. And for many people suffering with PTSD, the world is generally, for them, an unsafe and dangerous place. And part of the work that we do with them, both neurologically with the action of psilocybin, as well as the therapy that we do, um, helps them process their trauma and helps them establish a different and new perspective. And ultimately, as part of that healing journey, um, they will begin to um, begin to make meaning out of what happened to them in the past. And in making meaning, positive meaning out of that, they're able to move forward in life again. And they're not just coping, but they're actually flourishing. So there is a lot of value in that data. What I'd also say is that PTSD is rarely a standalone condition. It comes with other comorbidities such as alcohol use disorder and depression and anxiety. And psilocybin especially has this trans diagnostic advocacy. It's, um, it can be utilized for a variety of different mental health conditions. And so we use our longitudinal results to help us inform our dosing protocols and also our therapeutic interactions with our guests as well. So it's really a work in progress, but we yeah. feel that obviously 
MDMA is a fantastic substance for working with chronic or treatment-resistant PTSD, but psilocybin has its place in that work as well. Can you please give a bit more detail about the importance of, uh, of the group and, and you know, the success of psilocybin therapy for, uh, for, for the participants at the retreat? And how is that data being introduced in, in the work you're currently doing at the Jamaican Psilocybin Industry Working Group? The purpose of the group is to share. It's not truly, truly integration therapy. Now, that's not to say that sharing your experience with a group is not substantial. It absolutely is substantial. But the art of a good lead therapist in leading a group through therapy is to, A, work with the dynamic intention that's in the room. Um, when a particular guest is talking about their experience, to tease out certain aspects of that experience, to shine a light on it, and ultimately to use that experience and what's being teased out to inform the rest of the group present so it shines a bit more light on the struggles that they've had, um, makes it more relatable, and, and leads to better outcomes. So there really is a, an art to doing good group therapy. From a purely economic perspective, um, one of the concerns as the industry grows is how is the existing healthcare infrastructure going to work with psychedelics? And whereas your typical MD's interaction with a therapist might be 15 to 20 minutes, therapist might be one hour, a psychiatrist mm -hmm. may be 15 minutes to half an hour, these very valued individuals that are also highly paid, um, it doesn't become economically viable for them to be spending six or seven or eight hours with one individual. It does not scale economically and doesn't make it viable. So what we see that with group psychedelic integration therapy, um, it somewhat addresses the scalability issue and the economics as well. But beyond that, having led and worked in many, many integration circles over the years, I cannot understate the power of the group. Um, many of our guests come to us with seemingly intractable uh, treatment-resistant uh, mental health conditions that have been resistant to the typical pharmaceutical interventions and talk therapy can only take them so far, and they feel quite isolated in their condition. So when they get to come here and hear other people's stories and backgrounds and how they've struggled or overcome challenges, um, it, it helps them to feel a lot less isolated as well. Um, as we're all aware, there is a huge decrease in social connectedness in the West now. Um, what I can tell you, Lara, is that um, every single retreat we have, these guests bond incredibly well. And we have a social connectedness uh, scale that we use as well. And we see a substantial increase in the social connectedness that we see between the guests uh, by the end of the retreat. And that, frankly, many good relationships and friendships are made. And they tend to stay in contact with a long, for a long time with each other afterwards. And so one of the other benefits of group integration is that um, a group integration session that, you know, is, is sharing and hearing about other people's experiences and their reason for being on retreat, and it helps break through the isolation that so many people feel. And we do see a lot of isolation down here uh, with the various mental health issues that people have. And feeling of less isolation is really helpful from these retreats as well. So this is definitely something that uh, you will advise on uh, in your work, uh, in your sort of political work in the um, Jamaican uh, industry working group. Can you tell us a bit about that? Um, How's the work going? What's, you know, what's its 
um, original goal and uh, how do you think it, it's going to affect maybe uh, the industry in other countries, maybe within, you know, within America, in places where um, psychedelic retreats are offered as of currently? So, okay, so I would say, first of all, independent of our work, with the Jamaican Bureau of Standards in developing our gold standard model here, just sort of working and in collecting all of this data. Um, it was our hope that we can certainly build a model that can be emulated elsewhere, okay? Now, as it pertains to the Jamaican Bureau of Standards, um, that initiative was began in around about February, March of last year. We had our first official meeting. Uh, the person that is responsible for this is a Jamaican psychiatrist uh, called um, Senator uh, Longmore, and she's really been a, a driving force um, for establishing this group and eloquently communicating um, the reasons why it's appropriate for Jamaica. So to that end, um, the Jamaican Bureau of Standards is the organization, the governmental organization that's been um, asked to set this up. Uh, Senator Longmore established an executive committee, of which she is the chairwoman, um, there are three other members of that executive committee, of which I am one. Below that executive committee, we have a number of other subcommittees that look at the therapeutic slash clinical slash retreat application um, of psilocybin. Another subcommittee is the cultivation of uh, psilocybin. Uh, there's a research and science-based committee. And there is also a retail committee because in certain places in Jamaica, you're able to walk into a store and buy nutraceuticals that contain psilocybin and also bars of triplet. So there, it was recognized that um, there is certainly a need within Jamaica to define standards for safety and quality. Um, and it's kind of twofold. It's to ensure that the foreigners that are coming here that are contributing their tourism dollar um, are working with organizations and individuals that um, have a minimum standard of education and training and experience to ensure on the cultivation side that, you know, um, we grow our own mushrooms here. We have a small cultivation operation. There are a number of other cultivation operations on the island. Um, a lot can go wrong with contamination, uh, contamination of these mushrooms. Um, if they're grown on horse manure, there's a risk of fecal matter uh, contamination. But ultimately, we also need to understand what psilocybin and psilocin content is of the products that, that we're working with. And so, so to that end, um, there are a couple of labs in Jamaica that test for all of this. So really, the goal is a minimum standard uh, to ensure that all of the different organizations here, from retreat centers, to cultivation operators to uh, retailers, um, all abide by this standard. And it's for the safety um, and protection of everybody as well. But also... Um, you know, Jamaica is not without its own mental health issues. Uh, there's a lot of domestic violence here, alcoholism, and a myriad of different mental health issues. And to ensure that eventually over time that the government can get behind making psilocybin widely available to anybody here. Now, to that end, um, in the last two or three years, um, a number of prominent psychiatrists that I know personally in Jamaica have begun to use psilocybin in their practices especially for treating uh, treatment-resistant depression and the like, and they're getting great outcomes. It's more of a day clinic kind of approach and a, di a different set of protocols than we use here on retreat. And because the reputation for the success is growing, other psychiatrists on the island are now sending 
their patients to these psychedelic psychiatrists as well. So slowly we're making headway here. So um, if you had to like forecast uh, what the Jamaican uh, psilocybin healthcare space would look like in in the next year, why not maybe in the next five years? Do you say that it's going to be more sort of standardized? All the activities pertaining psilocybin services, testing, growing, um, providing the medicine, is it going to be more standardized? Is, is the model maybe uh, going to be replicated in other places? Is the working group collaborating with uh, working groups in other countries or, or uh, institutions abroad? Uh, in order to formulate these standards? So um, the, you know, what's called the CARICOM region, including many of the Caribbean islands, some are stepping up and addressing psychedelics. Others are just sitting and waiting and watching, you know, but one, one can only hope that if once we achieve the appropriate standards here and excellent working models, and we've got the research and data to back that, that that can be emulated further throughout the Caribbean, undoubtedly. I think the standards are absolutely necessary. Um, we want to be as inclusive as possible here because not everybody runs a retreat company the size of micro meditations. I mean, we're doing on average 40 to 45 retreats every year. As you mentioned earlier, that's we're up to two, uh, 6,000 doses across 2,000 guests. That's a fairly large volume. We've got a lot of good insight, a lot of very experienced people, a lot of good data. So my goal is to take the best practices from Jamaica and to make them, to offer them and to make them available for consideration because you're going to have the medical doctors and psychiatrists that will have one particular model, maybe the day clinic model. You've got the solo operators um, in Jamaica that want to work with individuals. You've got large cultivation companies, small cultivation companies. You know, whenever you're running a, any kind of business, there is always a minimum kind of cost involved in establishing a certain degree of standard and quality, right? And so we have to make sure that any of the standards that we implement are enough to get the job done, but not so onerous as to be a cost, a huge cost burden and prohibitive to other people that want to work within this space. And um, so it's really about making sure that we pass the widest net for as many businesses and uh, that want to work within this industry in a safe and quality assured manner. How does the team at Myco Meditations address people's requests for help and assistance after they've been through a harmful psychedelic experience provided by someone we could typically call a charlatan? First of all, yeah. um, we get a fair amount of what I call ayahuasca casualties down here or psilocybin yeah. casualties down here. Um, people that had the inappropriate set and setting got blown wide open didn't have any therapeutic support or didn't have any experienced therapeutic support. And the facilitator was in over their head and was unable to help to safely support that person, leading to ongoing existential crisis and all manner of other conditions. So we're used to dealing with a lot of those types of casualties that come down to us. I'm Because of our reputation in the space, I get a lot of phone calls and emails. Hey, my 20-year-old, just did mushrooms four days later this is what's going on how can i help them and we're always more than willing uh, to give that advice but it goes back to this um first of all if you've had one or two or three psychedelic experiences yourself and they've gone well and you've begun to heal from it it's a very natural inclination to want to help others and recommend it to others 
and even to begin to set yourself up as a facilitator in some way. Uh, that is problematic because as we know from the shamanic approach, there are many, many years spent training and educating within that methodology to work with these medicines and to work with the psyche. Um, and the same extends to somewhere like Oregon. Frankly, the way that Oregon have set themselves up, there is a few months of um, theory and classroom, and then all that's required is a two-week practicum, and you are now licensed to administer psilocybin. So that to me is terrifying. Um, I have come across many therapists that were that were prominent therapists that are extremely competent in their mental health uh, practices, but they're not used to dealing with the way that some people can respond with psychedelics. Um, and when you have people without a mental health background, I mean, let's face it, you have people that come that definitely have a clinical diagnosis of PTSD or depression or anxiety, but many, many people are walking trauma units without even realizing that they're walking trauma units uh, that don't have any kind of diagnosis and it's not as simple as just giving somebody psilocybin and then sitting by quietly while they go through their process um if somebody starts to unravel slightly let's say they're having a very powerful catharsis all of our team members are highly trained and experienced in working with that but one of the first things you have to be able to do is emotionally self-regulate as a facilitator it's all very well you know people can captain a ship in calm weather but what are you like in a storm that's where you're truly tested. And if you use the wrong tone, the wrong look, you may be even masking your anxiety at what's happening to a client. But if internally you are leaking anxiety out of your solar plexus, um, somebody on psilocybin who has very extended emotional antenna is going to pick up on that. And if they don't feel that the person facilitating for them feels safe and secure and in, and in command of the situation, they're going to unravel themselves and start to spiral the drain. Um, the other thing is, is many people have within them that have been through trauma, a trauma vortex. So when we're addressing trauma with our guests, even in integration, our goal is to lightly scoop in and scoop out of that trauma vortex gently and slowly. The risk is, is if people through an inexperienced facilitator or therapist are led deeply into their trauma vortex, they're going to lose the ability to emotionally self-regulate. They're going to start talking and wandering all over the reservation and not being coherent. And there's often because of the chemicals that are released in the body through being immersed in that trauma vortex, they're going to often experience some flu-like symptoms and, and a bit of toxicity for a few days. That is a very undesirable uh, thing to have happen. So given the myriad of mental health issues, um, the teams need to be grounded and versed in common mental health um, uh, conditions and practices. But beyond that, even current therapist training in the traditional sense is not enough because as a client using psilocybin, there's two or three levels to the experience. You can have a very personal experience. It's related to your trauma, your maladaptive behaviors, and that can be managed well. But if you have a bigger dose and you enter into the metaphysical or philosophical realms or what in Jungian depth psychology is known as the mythic poetic layer, um, psychological content will arise that can be mythical. It can be a trip through Hades into the underworld. It can be uh, a vision of um, an apocalyptic scene. It could be Christ on the cross, all of which symbolically has meaning and is ripe for interpretation as it pertains to the individual. 
but how many therapists are versed in that and able to give that kind of interpretation. The next level up beyond the metaphysical, if you like, is when you, on these big doses, you can move into the cosmological, into what's called the mysteries. People can have very deep and profound spiritual experiences. And rather than kind of ramming some top-down belief system into, into the clients um, or some ideology that somebody has, um, you need to be versed in a menu of different belief systems and spiritual beliefs. And your goal is to help build the scaffolding around that experience for the client, but ultimately to help them create the meaning out of it themselves. So there's a variety of ways in which inexperienced, uneducated, overconfident, but well-meaning practitioners um, can go wrong. And in my mind, more time needs to be spent on the experiential piece and not just a two-week practicum. Um, aside from that, whether it's the shamanic approach or the Western, or say the Western world, like say the LA plastic shamans, right? Dressed in white, banging drums. They've got all the props, but there's some underlying narcissistic traits or some other less desirable qualities to them. Um, they can get in over their heads very quickly. And there's all sorts of ethical and boundary violations that can happen. And the ethical um, piece of our work here uh, needs to be absolutely on point and of the highest standard as well. Uh, I, I guess one more thing is that um, if you're familiar with, with, with depth psychology, we all know about the dark shadow, the dark shadow being, um, say, aspects of your personality that you don't want to admit to in its simplest tense. Um, there's the golden shadow as well. And so when you work with a client and they have a transformational experience, it's not uncommon for them to start referring to the therapist, the retreat leader, the facilitator, the guru, and projecting all the healing quality onto the therapist. As a matter of fact, that's the projection. As a therapist or facilitator, you have to reverse that and highlight the client's um, golden shadow and their own potential that they're currently projecting onto you. But unfortunately, um, a lot of people working in this space lap up the hero worship, lack up being called a guru, and as we've seen in many different organizations, be they yoga, or spiritual, or even psychedelic retreats, eventually that gets a bit cultish and it's, things start to go sour very, very quickly. So there's a lot of different areas here that need to be addressed. To uh, wrap up this conversation, would you like to um, tell us uh, what, what are uh, Michael Meditation's plans for this year and uh, uh, coming years? So we're definitely watching what's happening in, in the U.S. Um, mm -hmm. keenly. As you probably realize from what I've said earlier, I have no desire to operate in Oregon. But even then, the limitations placed on the Oregonian practitioners, such as maximum of five grams per, per client, I know is not enough to, to shift the need for so many different mental health conditions. And there's lots of other limitations as well. Colorado, however, is looking promising. Uh, we're looking at other states as well. So we are never going to become the McDonald's of retreat centers and keep farming people through. We're looking to remain boutique very high quality offering, great outcomes, safety and security. Uh, we certainly have an eye on, to say, the Netherlands a bit further down the road. Uh, it remains to be seen. I, I come from a growth-oriented business background, and I'm having to go at a slower pace than I'm used to, but it's also been humbling to do so. There are many, many factors as I think about the business in the future that are out of our control, such as when does the FDA uh, regulate this? To what degree do they regulate it? How will this integrate with existing possible infrastructure? 
when and if will insurance companies come on board, what will be the national standard versus the local statewide standard, will there be collaboration or will there be friction? Um, what about the banking situation? Until the feds uh, anoint MDMA and psilocybin as legal and able to be used, banks, national banks won't touch psychedelic revenue or peripheral psychedelic revenue, same as we saw with the cannabis industry. So there are quite a few limitations and hurdles um, that we have to observe here. So we're just going to wait and see what the timing is. Um, we are doing extremely well in Jamaica. Our retreats are often booked months in advance. We're seeing a huge uptick either in repeat guests coming back a year to 18 months later to work on whatever's next in their lives. Uh, we're seeing a lot of um, viral business. So the husband might come first, later the wife comes, and maybe an uncle or a brother or a sister or an adult child. Um, and these, and they're coming because they see their father or mother return as transformed, changed individuals, and it gives them uh, the incentive to want to try this themselves as well. So um, our work with the Jamaican Bureau of Standards is very important to us. We want to see what we can positively impact on the ground here in Jamaica um, and then overseas as and when we're ready. But, when, you know, right now I cannot pick up the phone to anybody and say, hey, I need five new retreat leaders, okay? Because if anything, they've had shamanic experience or some underground work but they're just not experienced enough. And so when we bring people in, such as lead therapists and retreat leaders, there's quite a long and intensive training program that they have to go through. And I need to feel absolutely confident that no matter what happens in the dosing space on retreat, that they are more than competent and capable of working and dealing with that. Otherwise, we will start to suffer reputational damage. And I'm not going to allow that to happen. It's all very well saying to make an omelet, you've got to break a few eggs. But the eggs in these cases are human beings. And so we take this safety approach and the training and the educational piece very, very seriously. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this was Justin Townsend, CEO of Myco Meditations. Thank you for joining us today, Justin, in Benzinga Psychedelics Podcast. Thank you for having me.